Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson. Uh, thanks for uh, KUCI Theater and Reviews for kind of queuing us up today. And uh, this is our uh, October 11th, 2007 edition of the show. It's uh, 4.07 on the clock. We had our usual opening music there. I got a write from Iggy and uh, James Williamson. And a little extra music today for uh, some... Uh, Songs of a, an Amazonian ayahuasquero, uh, uh, interesting stuff that relates to our discussion today. And before we get started, a, a couple quick reminders. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, that's Larson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's MySpace.com slash Out the Rabbit Hole. A couple months ago, we went down and came back out a strange rabbit hole with Daniel Pinchbeck to discuss uh, to discuss his uh, astonishing book, Breaking Open the Head, A Psychedelic Journey into the Heart of Contemporary Shamanism. He's back today to discuss his more recent book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. The thoughts here uh, may seem even more bizarre to some of you, but in a certain sense, if approached with an open and honest heart and mind, they are quite sensible. Daniel Pinchbeck, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It, it's great to have you back. Uh, yeah, can you talk, uh, maybe go back over a little bit, uh, some of your study of shamanism and psychedelics uh, chronicled in Breaking Open the Head and how that led you to this book, uh, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl? Yeah, I mean, for me, it's been a kind of logical uh, transition process. But I was sort of in my late 20s. I was working in New York as a journalist, and I had a massive kind of spiritual crisis. <clears throat> and I remembered, you know, kind of psychedelic experiences in college as being kind of fascinating. So I decided that I would explore them more uh, seriously. So I began to take some assignments to write about rituals. I went down to the Amazon in Ecuador and worked with the tribe, taking ayahuasca. I went down to West Africa in uh, Gabon, and I went out through a tribal initiation with a tribe called the Bwiti, taking uh, iboga, which is a psychedelic uh, root bark they use in initiation down there. I also visited the Mazatec Indians and took mushrooms. And so, so I began to have these very extraordinary experiences where these shamans would give me information that, that I couldn't understand how they had, or I would get information during these psychedelic journeys about my past or hints about my future. And, um, I, you know, so over the time of researching that book, my whole kind of frame of reference shifted from really coming out of a secular materialist paradigm to kind of accepting that the shamans, you know, really knew something, that there was a kind of uh, realm of the psyche, or what you know, Carl Jung talks about, it, like the reality of the psyche, and that there were things like synchronicities and other occult aspects of consciousness and reality. So when, when I finished breaking open the head, I was really left realizing that, you know, our, our sort of modern Western worldview has gotten sort of stuck in this one side of, of uh, sort of the, the, uh, the world, which is this kind of secular materialism, and we've kind of lost our access to the psychic realms or any possibility of kind of mystical or occult or shamanic consciousness. And so then I began to realize that, you know, if there was some validity to these other cultures, knowledge systems, then we had to really take seriously what they were saying about the time that we're in now. And then I began to discover there were a lot of really coherent uh, prophecies from different cultures, uh, including uh, the Hopi uh, Indians in Arizona who talk about this time being the uh, transition from the fourth world to the fifth world, 
or the Mesoamerican cultures, which talk about the age of the fifth sun turning into the age of the sixth sun. And uh, the Mayans were particularly sort of on this, and it really seems when you examine what they left behind for us, this is a classical Mayan civilization, that they're pointing towards uh, December 21st, 2012, as some kind of key transformation point. Uh, or we could really just say that we're all in, in a transform- transformational process right now. And in a sense, the way I end up looking at 2012 in the book is we have this kind of window of opportunity in the next few years to uh, catalyze a uh, shift in global consciousness and, and shift to a different type of planetary culture and civilization. Yeah, so you, so you were this, uh, this uh, jaded, secular... Uh humanist, uh, you know, rationalist kind of person, and then after doing these psychedelics, sort of, uh, you know, figuratively had your head uh, broken open, and, and all of a sudden ideas that seemed completely weird and not worth consideration, you now were being drawn towards, and, and one of those was the, the idea of the, the Mayan calendar. So could, could you talk a little bit about, about the Mayan calendar? What, what is that, and, 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 and how... And what are they saying about the year 2012? Yeah, well, I mean, so if you talk to, like, our mainstream archaeologists, like people at Yale and so on, and for the most part, you know, they, they, they talk about, they understand that there was a long count, uh, which, which began in about 5,120 years ago, that ends in 2012, and uh, they understand that there was a sort of significance put on it by the Maya, but for the most part, they don't really have an understanding of what it could mean. And it's really been up to... Uh, sort of more like visionary scholars, uh, shamans, you know, people with shamanic inspiration, to to sort of elucidate a different kind of paradigm. And from that from that perspective, it, it seems that the Maya uh, had a different way of conceiving time than we do. We have a kind of linear, like Newtonian, Cartesian view of time, which is equivalent to space. Uh, you know, where every every day and every hour are kind of the same as every other day and every other hour. The, the Maya had a more sort of cyclical or almost like fractal or harmonic view of time. There were these kind of uh, patterns that repeated in kind of different octaves over, over, over different uh, phases. And so the, in a way, as, as this one uh, scholar, Carl Owen Callum, describes it, the mind calendar could be, seen as a, could be seen as a timetable for the evolution of consciousness. And there's kind of uh, accelerations of, uh, of consciousness. So that, you know, according to Callum's uh, developed model, we're now experiencing... In about one year, what people experienced in about 20 years uh, uh, in terms of evolution, development, uh, creation, destruction, creativity, uh, you know, what people experienced about 20 years, starting from 1999, going back to the 1750s, and before then, people experienced in almost 400 years. So there's this kind of like telescoping of, of uh, create creativity and destructive evolution of consciousness uh, uh, novelty. It, so, and, uh, and then 2012 would somehow be the end or culmination of, of, of this process, where we would shift into a different kind of realization of uh, time and space and being. So, so uh, when you first you know, mentioned this, this weird model of time, this sort of fractal model of time that the Maya had, it, it, it seems kind of weird and mystical and at odds with western science but that's not necessarily true there are some uh tra- uh schools of thought within western science that really are are not necessarily at odds with this well i mean actually the the main the mainstream of western science would accept uh you know relativity which is you know that that uh you know space time and consciousness are all connected you know which is, is basically pretty much what all these indigenous cultures are talking about i mean the hopi for instance talk about a kind of 
kind of continuum consciousness where there's a sense where everything that we're experiencing in, in time and space that has already happened, and we're really just experiencing, you know, it's kind of unscrolling, like, like a kind of movie or prophetic uh, dream or something. And that's, you know, what kind of quantum physics uh, came up with in the 20th century, and they really talked about how, you know, space-time, you know, from like a fifth-dimensional perspective already exists in block, and then each of us is just seeing a little, like, fractal uh, window onto it, you know. <clears throat> yeah, and, and so... Uh... We're, we are, according to this, this uh, calendar and, and actually other sources that, that just seem to all point toward the next five years being a, an intense period of change and transformation, some of what you talk about in the book and, and others talk about is it, it's a bit disturbing and alarming, but yet, there, as I think you already pointed out, there's a real hopeful element to it. We have this opportunity to to radically transform ourselves in, into something that is our highest aspiration. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's the way I, I, I do look at it. I mean, um, and I think if you, you know, look at our situation right now, you know, we can see that, you know, we're, we're in an ecological crisis that's of uh, incredible magnitude. And, and if we really want to survive as a species... It's going, to, it's going to require a, a kind of ecological U-turn in human consciousness. It's going to require a totally different kind of infrastructure and different systems and different priorities, a whole different value system. That, that's really inescapable, I think. I mean, you know, we're looking at a species extinction crisis where like 25% of all species are going to be extinct in 30 years. You know, the climate change figures keep exceeding projections. I mean, there was this thing from The Guardian yesterday which said that, uh, you know, coastal flooding, including like New York, New York going underwater, you know, the timetable from that, of, of that as a, as a distinct possibility has shifted from hundreds of years to decades to potentially even like a few years, you know, so, so it just seems like we're learning all these feedback loops in the system that have now been engaged. So at the same time, our, obviously our technology is, is, is accelerating and we're developing all these new capacities. Then I also think as a third aspect, there's a kind of psychic evolution taking place. So that's, that's harder to quantify, but in the, you know, among people that I know and the worlds that I travel in, it seems like you know, people are becoming aware of a kind of psychic element to, to reality so that they experience more synchronicities, more telepathic hints, more of a sense of kind of intention uh, leading to manifestation or things just coming like almost, almost too quickly. You know? And that seems to be part of this kind of quickening or accelerating pro- process. And so then, you know, in, the, in my book in 2012, I also visited the Hopi, and I talk about a Cambridge anthropologist who um, was uh, studying the Hopi and lived with them. And, uh, you know, this Cambridge guy was a total skeptical, empirical, you know, academic-trained anthropologist, but he admitted that, you know, sometimes he would go to these Hopi rain dances, and it would be like a clear blue sky, burning hot sun, 120 degrees, they would dance for like 20 minutes or half an hour, and clouds would suddenly gather and, and rain would fall. And this totally uh, blew his mind. He said he was almost embarrassed to uh, put it down in his work, but he felt that he had to because he'd seen it happen. You know, so, and I've, I've, I've you know, anecdotally have encountered like, a lot of confirmation of those kind of experiences where it seems like you know, if there is a psychic element to, uh, to reality, then human consciousness you know, concentrated in rituals and non-ordinary states and so on actually seems to have the ability to affect uh, weather conditions, elemental forces, so, so that could become very crucial in a, in a time when we're facing this, uh, you know, real, really terrifying uh, speed up of climate change. 
This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson, and uh, we're talking today with Daniel Pinchbeck about his book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. I have trouble pronouncing that. What's the correct pronunciation of that, Daniel? Well, I'm not the best pronouncer myself. <laughs> I've heard Quetzalcoatl without the last L, and I've heard Quetzalcoatl, so I kind of waffle in between them myself. <laughs> okay, I'll do my best with it. But um, you, 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 um, you mentioned the Hopi there and, and being there with this... Uh, anthropologist guy who who had to sort of come to an, an acceptance of certain things that he he couldn't uh, quite explain conventionally you, you did a great job of, of describing your your time there in Hopi land and 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 I I couldn't help but just feeling how weird that was uh, juxtaposed to to your native New York and and I, I don't know you just could you talk a little bit about what it felt like being there and some of the weird things that happened to you well, actually, I always, whenever I go into tribal cultures, you know, which I've had the opportunity to do like maybe five or six times, I uh, always actually feel very, very comfortable. You know, I mean, um, they tend to be very welcoming, actually, and, and also a lot of the barriers that, that we have in the modern Western culture don't really, uh, you know, figure as much. Uh, I mean, so during my time in Hopi Land, for instance, I went to one of the uh, rain dances. And, you know, everybody just opened their homes, and they almost insisted that I, like, come in and they eat with them, even though I was, like, a white man and a stranger. You know, it's like I really can't imagine, you know, in New York City how, you know, we could have a similar event where everybody was just like, hey, come on in, share, you know. Uh, so actually, whenever I, um, when I hang, whenever I hang out in, in indigenous cultures, I tend to feel that they, they really have uh, this kind of deep sense of uh, sharing and community, which, which we've kind of forfeited. And so when you go back to New York, does New York then feel kind of weird, or you feel just as at home there as well? Well, I mean, definitely, you know, New York feels increasingly uh, weird. I mean, you know, we, we have an increasing kind of surveillance uh, state here, you know, uh, increasing, you know, sort of manic uh, histrionic police presence. You know, it, it, it feels like, um, yeah, there's a kind of... Uh, you know, there, there, there's this kind of uh, anxiety or fear that's being, like, transmitted through our whole, uh, you know, American society. And definitely New York is one of those places where you really get a hit off that. And meanwhile, there's still the just insane consumerism and, and the whole kind of engine of, of this society, which just keeps on going, even though really when you look at the situation on a, on a meta level, uh, it, it, can't, it can't continue in this way. And, um, you know, the, 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 there's going to either be a uh, super a sort of gentle supersession into some different type of uh, paradigm, or there's going to be some kind of mega collapse. Uh, you know, I think, you know, I hope that's not the case, but uh, that, that, that to me is what the evidence kind of points towards. But possibly if there is some sort of catastrophic or, or semi-catastrophic uh, collapse of, of whatever, that we will have evolved enough psychically or however that we will be able to... Uh, bring forth solutions in, in a much more rapid manner. Is that, is that what you see happening? Yeah, pretty much, pretty much. I think that, 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 would, that would be, that would be um, what, what seems like uh, we could be on the, on the horizon for us. Yeah. So uh, you, you mentioned this sort of psychic evolution and these different things and synchronicities and, and uh, how it seems to be happening more, especially for certain people, and these bizarre events that, that sort of break down the barrier between 
mind and matter. And one of the things you mentioned, it was lucid dreaming. It's just a couple pages in the book. But that's been somewhat of a staple of discussion on this show. I've always thought it was important because it, it really does question that barrier between waking and dreaming and gives one a taste of, of uh, being a co-creator of reality. Uh, so do, do you feel that uh, we're going to start seeing more uh, of that type of thing, lucid dreaming, and, and, and uh, as, like, say, by the year 2012, certain things like that will just be completely commonplace? Well, yeah, and I think also, like, um, in terms of what might form, like, a next paradigm for human culture and civilization, I think it's the realm of the psyche that, that, that's going to be the, become the area of exploration, you know, so all sorts of uh, non-binary state exploration, uh, I, I think, will will become like what people are really, really excited about. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, okay. So in your book, you you also get into uh, some things that are pretty controversial. Things like uh, the crop circle phenomenon, uh, a UFO, alien abduction f- phenomena, and uh, what uh, w- what are your thoughts about uh, the the whole alien abduction thing. I mean, it was something that you said you didn't, like many of these things, didn't take seriously, you know, 15 years ago, and, and now you, you look at it as a phenomenon that, that has some meaning for us. Can you talk a little about that? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I've even, you know, been thinking a lot about that since 2012 came out, and, um, uh, you know, and it's, it's difficult to get, like, clear evidence on it. I did a lot of research on the crop circles and spent a lot of time out in England where the, where the most amazing ones appear, and, and I definitely uh, don't, don't see it as a human-made uh, phenomenon. Uh, I mean, that doesn't mean that humans aren't making some of them, but there's a lot of evidence, like biophysicists who've done research on the plants and uh, geometers who found, like, extraordinary uh, virtuosic uh, geometry and new information in the patterns that really suggests that it can't, it can't have been a human-made uh, you know, phenomenon, you know, as it continues. So, you know, to me, it's some kind of communication or teaching from a higher intelligence or galactic intelligence. And it may even be pointing toward, you know, post this kind of trans- transformational threshold, you know, may- maybe we are actually going to be in uh, communication with, uh, you know, go- uh, galactic civilizations. You know, and I don't see why that's so far-fetched when we see how our own uh, evolution has, has proceeded, you know. Uh, and, and in terms of the alien abductions, you know, it does seem that um, that is a legitimate phenomenon that uh, happens, but in a way it seems to happen in a kind of uh, altered state of consciousness, you know, but it also has physical qualities and characteristics. I mean, this people, you know, John Mack, Harvard uh, uh, psych, psych, psychiatrist, I mean, he spent years studying it, and, you know, there's real physical evidence, you know, people actually disappear for several hours or... They find, uh, you know, protuberances under their skin that are implants, you know. So, uh, you know, when you really look at that whole phenomenon and all the different writings about it, um, I mean, there are different ways to look at it. But, um, you know, it, it may be that um, there's some kind of long uh, narrative here about uh, alien uh, contact, uh, alien involvement with uh, human evolution. And, um, you know, we, we may be finally getting to the point where we can understand that and, and take it seriously uh, without it, like, totally uh, freaking us out or amazing, amazing us or horrifying us. You know, to, just the way we, you know, cultivate different species and different plants and, and, and help them transform. You know, we, we may ourselves have been a, a cultivated species on this planet. These little uh, gray aliens that people say are abducting them, you, um, 
you kind of see these things as not as something not necessarily physically real, but at the same time important. And could could you? What, well, what, what do you? Have, they may not. I mean, I don't know. If, you know, they they may have exactly the same amount of relative reality that that we do. <laughs> um, in in a physical uh, entities who have, you know, they're they're in in a different form of consciousness that, in some senses, is a kind of lower form of consciousness. Although they have developed higher technology, but what seems to come up from a lot of these accounts is a sense of them almost being kind of a soulless or heartless uh, entities who are kind of, uh, they're attracted to human emotional warmth in the same way kind of like moths and dusty bugs are attracted to flame and fire. And it it may almost be, I mean, one thesis about them is that they're somehow a species that, um, you know, kind of cloned itself to a certain point where, you know, they they lost any contact with their spiritual source, they they lost their emotions, and so on. So they're almost on this desperate uh, intergalactic hunt to, to you know, repair this damage that they've, they've done to themselves through kind of hypertrophy development of technology. And so, you know, what, what seems to come out in these, in these cases is some kind of uh, genetic project where they're trying to revive their own, uh, you know, species through, through uh, uh, you know, some kind of genetic uh, project with the human species. Okay, I, I got to ask you about this. Um, the the person who was responsible in a large way for really popularizing this subject is uh, Whitley Strieber with his book Communion, and you were not so long ago on, on his radio show and did an interview with him, and uh, I, I hadn't listened to it, but I, I read your uh, thoughts on your th- thoughts on after doing the interview, and there was kind of a, a heated uh, debate or a, a kind of an argument could could you talk about that a little what what the disagreement was that you had with Whitley Strieber Sure well I mean you know so I've been I've, I was explaining my 2012 kind of paradigm which you know as you noted is a kind of hopeful one um, <clears throat> and he kept um whenever I say something negative like the species extinction crisis he would go oh that's an end game for us or if I if I talked about the internet he would say oh you know the military and the government corporations about to take that away from us And then finally, I got a little exasperated. I was like, okay, Whitley, so like, what's your vision of this post-2012 future? And he said, uh, oh, I think there's going to be a huge die-off of the human population. And he actually didn't even just say that he thinks it. He said that he knows it, and it's definitely going to happen. And that, for me, uh, you know, raised a lot of alarm bells, because, you know, I I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think anybody does. I mean, everything in life is really a miracle. I mean, I've got 50 50 trillion cells in my body that have self-organized so like we can have this conversation you know so for somebody to think that they know for a fact there's going to be a huge die for the human population to me is not is not knowledge it's a, it's a projection of their own shadow material their own kind of yearning for destruction and, and negative outcome and so on so that's what i kind of began to challenge him on and then as we went back and forth on that, on that you know i noted that you know what i picked up from his book was that he sort of had fallen under the sway of these uh, entities, these grades, or the visitors, as he calls them, and that, in fact, it was, it was possible that he, his, his perspective was uh, inflected by, by, by their perspective. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the books, like he talks about in Communion, that he started, he was being force-fed this bitter substance over many years in these kind of uh, hidden memories of, of these abductions, that finally he was able to swallow the substance. And then if you look at accounts of, like, goblins and fairies, you know, if you, if you drink the potion of, that, they're, that you're offered in the other world and you, and you swallow it, you know, you, you sort of fall under the spell of, of these other world entities. You know, so, so, so to me, it, it suggests that, um, 
you know, uh, sort of unwittingly, perhaps subconsciously or consciously, he he's sort of uh, been working with or for the, the, these entities to, to project a sort of negative vision, what what Rudolf Steiner would call a kind of aramonic uh, vision of uh, human possibility. And to me, it's even stranger because you know, according to his own you know accounts of these aliens, they have this super futuristic technology like uh, zero point fields energy devices and, and the ability to teleport through time and space. So clearly if they have all of that, it exists, which means that we could have it too. And if we had all of that, we wouldn't have any problems with, you know, energy crisis or resource crisis. We'd be able to do something else, you know. So I, I just find the whole thing very strange. Yeah, so the, those aliens, by not sharing that with us, are kind of keeping us down. And uh, it, so whatever the reality status of these beings is, you know, even, even if they are just sort of some kind of psychic construct they they have this power and 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 so you you are saying that that, that they, they seem to have kind of a negative agenda that that we should challenge or they're they're showing this possibility of catastrophe that could happen and you're saying well wait a minute you know nothing's set in stone and and why follow that dark path and uh, let, let's uh see you know what just be aware of what who these guys are what they are what they're saying to us what they're doing and and be empowered and and let us have our development on our own and, and reach those higher aspirations that you and I mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, precisely. I mean, just the way I wouldn't trust any, like, channel transmission, no matter how eloquent or interesting, because we don't know the ultimate agenda of the being who's, who's coming through, you know, if there, is, if there is a being there, you know. You know, and I also want to stress, you know, that all of this is a thought experiment, a hypothesis. You know, I try to be really careful about stuff that I can, you know, exp- ex- sort of express from either my own kind of phenomenological experience or stuff that really seems grounded to me. You know, here I'm a little bit further out on a limb, uh, you know, but, you know, I think somebody has to at least, like, open up these possibilities, you know, and yeah. try to take a serious look at them. Yeah, and, and you're not saying it's impossible that, that Whitley Strieber could be right. You're just saying that, well, we, we have no proof of that. Why right, well, buy into of, that? Right, and I guess part of my uh, hypothesis is you know, we, see, we seem to be learning right now that you know, our intention, our kind of, like, resonance of consciousness, you know, our, our you know, our, our set and setting of, of uh, you know, awareness begins to determine the kind of uh, reality that we co-create, you know, determines what kind of experiences become available to us. So, you know, if we have a negative uh, intention and, and a negative set setting, we're going to be helping to, like, to, like, move towards that kind of uh, attractor beam. You know, so so if if we if we had more of a positive vision, and you know, really, if we look at the situation right now, you know, if the uh, you know dominator, uh, you know, kind of uh, elite oligarchic system, you know, was to disappear, you know, we at the moment we have enough food to feed everybody. You know, there's a lot of visionary techniques uh, and tools available, whether it's bioremediation using uh, mushrooms and algae, whether it's using microbes to, you know, eat garbage and create alternative fuel sources, you know, whether it's, you know, um, local relocalizing communities, relocalizing food production and production in general, you know, we, we could, if we weren't in this, like, uh, insanely irrational kind of, uh, uh, you know, delusionary capitalist dominator doom spiral, you know, we could re-engineer uh, the whole system on the, uh, systems of the planet in, in, a, in a very short period of time. Uh, you know, in probably like six months to a year, you know, if if our focus really, really shifted to doing that. Yeah, and that that's a wonderful uh, positive vision. I think, yeah, we all should be 
putting our thought energy and our actual physical uh, energy into to bringing that to reality. This is Out the Rabbit Hole, KUCI in Irvine. I'm Robert Larson talking today with Daniel Pinchbeck. In, uh, we're discussing his book, 2012, The Return of Quetzalcoatl. Um, Daniel, we're going to go to a short musical break, and then we'll be back with more discussion, okay? Sounds great. Okay.